now that I've sold my farm, I, I, I recount these things. I remember though in those early days, this is embarrassing for me to say, screaming at the top of my lungs with my wife, this farm is going to kill me. This farm is going to kill me. And I continued to do that occasionally, even into the later years when things were much better. Look, I was doing this when I was 27. The, the move to grazing, uh, it was just better from day one. Greetings, my name is Case, and welcome to the Grasscast. This is Stories on Pasture, oral history from the grazing community about getting started and going forward. Today, we will be hearing from Craig Galbraith, a former grazer and dairyman turned columnist and contributor for the farming publication, Agriview. A prolific storyteller, Grade shares with us how he got into dairy, the many hardships he faced along the way, and how, through transitioning to grazing, he felt more connected to his land. We had the opportunity to connect with Grade this past January at the 2020 Grassworks Conference. Grade shared so passionately about his life on the land and so many rich stories, which we will now share with you. Let's listen in. I am originally from Libertyville, Illinois, which is 40 miles northwest of Chicago, and deeply impacted by my grandfather, who had a dairy farm in Anawa, Wisconsin. And, and so I uh, would visit him, and uh, not only was it a dairy farm that intrigued me, being from a suburb of Chicago, but, uh, the wide open spaces, uh, the cattle, which initially I was afraid of, but uh, also he was a prolific storyteller and just a character. So I was moved enough to to become a farmer. I mean, I I, uh, I was a jock in high school. I I was going to be a, a, a PE teacher. I was going to go into coaching, and I went to college at uh, Western Illinois University. Something clicked, and I instead changed to biology. So I spent two years at Western Illinois University in Macomb studying biology. Then I transferred to the University of Illinois in Champaign. And I was in a physics class where afterwards I walked out of the class and I went to my uh, counselor, uh, the school counselor, and I said, if I quit right now, can I get back in next semester? And so I quit school because I was just feeling like, I don't know what I want to do. I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. And then I discovered uh, the, the university, they call it the South Farm in Urbana, Illinois. And uh, I couldn't believe that you could study agriculture in college. And specifically dairy science. So they had this huge dairy farm. Uh, so I was just all in. I wanted to try this out. I worked there at the dairy farm. I loved every minute of it and enjoyed school much more after that, getting my degree in dairy science and not wanting to leave because I, I loved the farm and I loved education and <laughs> mixing the two. So, but then something clicked in me as I was getting my dairy science degree. I'm like, I'm gonna farm. That's, that's what I'm gonna do. You know, sometimes being really naive is a good thing because there would have been hundreds of people advising me against that and telling me how difficult that was going to be to do. But I was determined to do it, and I was determined that I was going to go up in the, the area of my grandfather's farm and farm. I, I basically uh, got a job 
breeding cows for select sires. I managed to start up a herd, renting in the neighborhood. I had 13 cows when I started. I bred cows and uh, I also did hoof trimming. And then there was a farm in the area that I was intrigued by. And I guess somebody had told me that this guy, this man that owned it might be considering selling it. So I just, I knocked on the door and uh, I said, if you ever want to sell this farm, I'm interested in buying it. I didn't have any money. None. <laughs> and, and, and it happened. It all happened. The, the whole naivete of just knocking on this guy's door and just having this experience of uh, dealing with this crazy guy. He was, he was a, a, what's the word, eccentric kind of a guy. And he wasn't a guy that had been around that neck of the woods for long. He had bought the farm and he was just an eccentric, wealthy, outspoken, unusual guy. And, and in retrospect, I can look back and say, he sold me that farm to spite five or six people in his life that were in that neighborhood. And that is very much the case. Uh, he was a vengeful person. And, and so that's how I, I bought this farm. After the, the gig at college, uh, I was a herdsman at two farms. One was a farm in uh, northern Georgia that was associated with a private college called Berry College. They had 20,000 acres of land. They had a dairy herd. Uh, and there was college students. I was a recent graduate. So, you know, I had like young people and it was fun. Then I moved on to the Hordes Dairyman Farm in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, which is a farm that is associated with Hordes Dairyman Magazine. Uh, so it's kind of a showcase type farm. Um, and they had a very high producing Guernsey herd. And I was very into, you know, making these cows make records. And indeed, you know, I had. Guernsey cows that that achieved record levels of milk production, I'll say partly because of what I did as a herdsman. Also very much partly because of the breeding that was behind them. So I had a five-year gig there. Then I, I was like, I want to be on my own. I had gotten married. My wife was similar to me. She grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee. Waukesha is where she grew up. And uh, the way that we met was she came to visit the Hordes Dairyman Farm. So I showed her around. The man that she worked for was with us. And when, when she was about to leave, they were about to leave. And I'm like, I, I, I got to get her name. I mean, this is obvious. <laughs> so they're in the car like, yeah, uh, maybe I could come see your farm sometime. What's your guy's name? And young lady, what's your name? And, and, uh, you know, we dated a few times. It was like, okay, let's just get married. This Obviously, this is what we need to do. Because we had these very similar uh, desires to farm. And, and then we had our first kid when we were there, a daughter. And uh, then, you know, I just got tired of wanting to farm on my own. And I just made the move up to the, that area. And like I said earlier, I, I bred cows for select sires, managed to have the bank lend us money for a small herd of cows, then managed to buy the farm from the vengeful man. And then it was kind of a disaster initially. The equipment was just terrible, uh, archaic, and we were just constantly having to fix things. And I had been reading about people that were, this would be in about 91, 
they were using rotational grazing. And I was just seeing it in the farm papers. And so I just had this very basic knowledge of how they moved their cows around. That's all I knew. They moved their cows around. And, and that, that seemed really interesting and enjoyable compared to what I was experiencing. Uh, and I should add, you know, I've, I've, now that I've sold my farm, I, I, I recount these things. I remember, though, in those early days, this is embarrassing for me to say, screaming at the top of my lungs with my wife, this farm is going to kill me. This farm is going to kill me. And I continued to do that occasionally, even into the later years when things were much better. Look, I was doing this when I was 27. So, and it was the biggest deal in the world to me. Those early days, were, it was very stressful. And the, the move to grazing, uh, it was just better from day one. Uh, for me, it was. And we learned it mostly on our own. Although there was the, the grazing networks that were out there that were starting up and more and more writing was being done about it. It was kind of a movement and we were close to being at the beginning of it. Not quite the beginning, but close. And uh, we had, I had very crude methods. I had farm store, electric fence, poly wire that I could lead the cows out to an area and set up these areas literally twice a day on foot and then reel them all back in and then do it again. It was just better. It was just there was just an improvement from the very beginning in terms of how we felt about our life, and then we also saw a bit of a financial improvement. I was able to you know get a four wheeler. I was able to kind of start investing in things that were really helpful to a, a grass based farmer. Just basic things like better reels for your poly wire, and uh, and then I I did some permanent divisions. With high tensile wire, myself, I became very intimately familiar with my farm through those early springs of expanding my fencing and my capabilities of using more of my farm for grazing until finally it was all fenced in. But those first five years in the spring of working from sunup to sundown, setting up my farm. I, I considered myself to be grounded and doing it with my feet on the ground and gaining an intimate knowledge of the farm that I had bought that I would never have had if I was doing all this from a tractor. And at one point we were able to have a, a, a paid contractor come in and do some fencing for us. So once we had everything all fenced in, it was really much easier to, you could do a better job of grazing. I, I wanted to be as low input as I could. I was helped by a, a consultant named Alan, but uh, what he taught me that I valued the most was to use my cows to change my pastures in a positive way, to have them evolve the way I wanted them to. I, I wasn't going to use external means. Um, there, there was always the controversy about whether you should, you know, plow something up and plant some improved grass, and I just didn't want any part of that. There were, people did not remember the last time it, it had, certain fields had been plowed. They, they think never, 
I don't think these fields have ever been plowed, Greg. So this is how much of an established sod I had. I didn't realize how valuable that was. But then it was, you know, let's take the cows now and let's, let's manage this grass and let's get more clover in there by broadcast seeding or by, you know, them spreading it in manure, by putting hay out there in the fringe seasons. I was a firm believer in low input and, uh, and Alan really drove that home to me. And uh, the other thing that he taught me was to walk my entire farm every 10 days and rank my paddocks. And according to him, I should literally be doing it in the winter also, which that's where he gets a little bit unrealistic at times. Because, you know, you know what you can't walk through? Chest high snow. But anyway, I, I definitely utilized it for eight to nine months out of the year, that method of walking the farm. And then it's kind of funny. I would say in my last five or six or seven years, I never walked the farm. The farm set itself up for me, um, and I knew I knew everything that was out there and what was going to happen. And so I would set my own rotation. I go, you know, let's start here, let's weave through here, let's weave through there, and it, it became incredibly easy after you know t more than twenty years of managing your farm that way. One thing that I passed over that I should tell you about was uh, how we were going to take a family vacation to go see a Brewers game in Milwaukee. We are going to stop at my wife's in-laws. And uh, when we got down there, my mother-in-law, she comes up to me, she says, do you have good insurance? And I'm just like, uh, what? And she goes, your barn just blew down. So, you know, this, this straight line winds, 100 miles an hour. It took our traditional barn that we had made a milking parlor in the middle out of with the stalls in the middle and it blew the barn down and we had to turn around and go back home and that was just a, a really kind of a, an epic night and you know it was a just a, dis, a disaster scene the house was fine and the first thing we did was get a flashlight and go in the through the desk and look for our insurance information and it's like, oh, I, th I think we're going to be okay. You know, we've got insurance for this. So we were able to build a swing parlor. We were, we were able to set the place up for grazing. If that hadn't happened, we would not have survived, I don't think. I don't think we would have ever, even though we had improved our finances uh, significantly, I don't think we'd ever been able to make an investment in a parlor. I'm not positive about that. I just think it was a... a incredibly lucky thing that seemed pretty terrible at the time. At one point, actually more recently, I, I heard this phrase from our work, art arises. And I had all these creative desires. I don't know where they came from. And I, I, I didn't hold back. When I, when I turned 40, so 21 years ago, I decided I was going to learn how to play the guitar. So first it was the guitar, and I was absolutely obsessed to, uh, to the point where my daughter was like, you know, will you please stop playing the guitar? Uh, I mean, I was just constantly playing the guitar. And another, you know, from our work, art arises type thing, I started writing, and I, I wanted to publish a book of poetry. And, and so I worked like mad at that. And, and I, I managed to pull it off. And then... Uh, the poetry thing led to, uh, to me noticing that AgReview newspaper 
was looking for writers. And so I approached them about it, and I've been writing for them for a couple of years. I have a weekly column, and I think all of, most of my creative energy now goes into writing. It's just been an amazing thing, because the farm, the farm is so much in all of my writing, and I think that people really appreciate that. So I've been able to tell all the stories, some of which I've told here, about the, our history of farming. And uh, it was rich, and, and it still is. It's a great, it's a great thing. I've, I've sold the farm to a young couple in the neighborhood. So this, this woman that I sold the farm to, she actually you know, was raised in that same home that she now lives in. I should say that her parents were working for that vengeful man that eventually sold me the farm. So she grew up right next to us uh, after they had moved out of there when I bought it. And we didn't always have a good relationship. I mean, it was a, it was a you know, over-the-fence-line observations, you know, typical stuff. We didn't always have a good relationship with the parents, not necessarily with the young woman, but, uh, but all that is repaired now. It's a very good thing. Uh, just how the farm sale went and the fact that we're almost like a more, more of a big family. We know each other better through the sale process. And any negativity we managed to take care of through that farm sale, that's a really good thing that that, you know, it's, it's a good karma thing. Our, our, young, our, our youngest son was going to work his way into the farm. That was going to be the plan. So he was with us for five years. He went through the apprenticeship program. And uh, then he, he decided to break the news to me that he didn't want to farm anymore. Within five minutes of him telling me that, I thought about the young woman that, I, that now resides in my home. I have not told you about the young man. They're the couple that bought our farm. When David told me that he didn't want to farm, 10 minutes later, I, I was like, I got to find Toby. And uh, I drove around looking for Toby, and uh, I found him. Uh, he was pulling into a field to do some chopping of some hay. And I just, I rolled down the window of the truck. I go, David doesn't want to farm anymore. Uh, I don't want to talk about that. But my farm is for sale, and you'd be crazy not to buy it. Because this, this young man, we had eventually gone organic with our, our farm. He was organic. He had a small, dilapidated barn-type setup, much like we had when we bought our place. He had more cows than could fit in it. He wanted more cows. He wanted more land. That's why I said, you're crazy if you don't buy it. Also, he's into grazing. I'm selling a farm that has not had a furrow turned in 30 years and has done nothing but managed as a grass farm. So he's going to appreciate this. And, and indeed, we worked on the sale of the farm for what seemed like an eternity because the farm economy was terrible. It's terrible now. It was really becoming in the news an issue how bad it was at that time when we were selling the farm. And I was paranoid. I was afraid Toby was going to get killed. It was, I was afraid something freaky was going to happen. And if Toby disappeared, who's going to buy my farm? Nobody. At least that's what I thought. So I was developing this paranoia that was forefront in my life. I'm like, we got to get this thing done. You know, I, I was ready to like look into taking out an insurance policy. I don't even know if that's possible. It's like if something happens to Toby, I need to get enough money to get the hell out of here in one piece. Um, I, was, I was back to, you know, screening this farm is going to kill me. I'm, I, 
I was doing that. So, you know, even, even though those grazing years and all that were so much better for us, farming is still stressful enough. And, and then even getting out was a challenge. And uh, it, it took, I don't know, six or eight months before it was a done deal and before I could stop being paranoid. So, you know, kind of to kind of draw to a close, I mean, I feel super fortunate. And uh, to be able to still have a, my foot in the door with farming and like this grazing conference and higher things, I mean, uh, like politics and, uh, you know, writing uh, to, to farmers saying, you know what, you need to be paying attention. Uh, did you hear what Sonny Purdue said? Get big or get out. You know, and then I could pontificate on this stuff. And uh, it's just, it's a great thing to have. It's also interesting that, yeah, as you get out of farming, then you have time to pay attention to this stuff. Everybody that I talk to about controversial issues that may have occurred that week, things that, uh, you know, Trump said or Sonny Purdue, um, they haven't even heard it. I'll say to a farmer, did you hear what they said? No. Well, I don't know. They're too busy. So anyway, now I'm able to channel that. And, uh, and storytelling, when the editor hired me, she said, you're more of a storyteller. So I want to give you a weekly column. And, uh, you know, talk about whatever you want, which is kind of what I've done here. And how, how lucky could I be? Uh, if I didn't have the writing thing, I'm 61 years old, I've sold my farm, and it has occurred to me that if I didn't have the writing gig and I couldn't go uh, feature farms that I wanted to feature, feature conservation methods that I uh, prefer, if I didn't have that, I would be lost. Um, so I'm so lucky, uh, and, and I've kept 20 acres of my grandfather's original farm, and uh, there's a syrup shack and a work, uh, woodworking building. Uh, I've woodworked extensively, including building guitars. So, I mean, I have this, this outlet. And, uh, and it's bizarre how, you know, it all started with my grandfather, and now there it's, it's come right back to that. Uh, and he was a storyteller, and so am I. So I'll just stop there. <laughs> Thanks for listening in to the Grassyast, Stories on Pasture, this week with Greg Galbraith. If you'd like to read some of Greg's work, check out the AgriView website. That is A-G-R-I-V-I-E-W, AgriView, and search for Greg Galbraith, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H. The Grasscast is a project of Grassland 2.0. If you would like to find out more about this collaborative effort, check out the website at www.grasslandag.org. The Grasscast is made up of Marty McGregor, Corey Blant, Case Wheatley, Mike Bell, and Hannah Cass. A special thank you to the grazing community and all of those folks who have offered guidance to us along the way. One last thing. If you like the Grasscast and are enjoying what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Check back soon for the next episode, and until then, be well.